Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Elise Max opens our hour as she speaks with Jessica Hicklin. Jessica was incarcerated at the age of 16 for murder and sentenced to 100 years. Yet because of a Supreme Court ruling that deemed charging minors with life without parole is cruel and unusual punishment, she was released in 2022 after serving 26 years. She's currently the Chief Technology Officer at Unlock ED Labs an organization that focuses on educating incarcerated people to ensure a stronger future. They are the first prison education platform created by incarcerated students for incarcerated students. We'll play the calendar in the middle of our hour. During the second half of our show, Rosalind Temple joins host Craig Lubo to talk about gun violence. Rosalind is the founder and executive director of KC Mothers in Charge. They will talk about the systemic causes of gun violence. They'll tell listeners what's being done about it and offer suggestions on what more we can do. On a cold November night in Kansas City, Rosalind Temple's son had been murdered. Temple learned about Mothers in Charge Incorporated and built a Kansas City chapter. Rosalind Temple launched Kansas City Mothers in Charge as a program of Kansas City's ad hoc group against crime, and later the organization received funding from the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department to move into its own office space and expand its programs and services. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Jaws of Justice on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. My name is Elise Max, and I'm very excited to be kicking off this Monday morning week with you on Jaws of Justice. Our guest today is Jessica Hicklin. We're very excited to have a conversation with Jessica this morning. Jessica was incarcerated at the age of 16 and sentenced to 100 years, but because of a Supreme Court ruling that deemed charging minors with life without parole is cruel and unusual punishment, she was recently released in 2022 after 26 years inside. Jessica has an amazing story to tell. She's currently the Chief Technology Officer at Unlocked Labs, an organization that focuses on educating incarcerated people to ensure a stronger future. Jessica, welcome to KKFI. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Elise. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, we only have about a half hour this morning, so I want to dive right in. Um, and I'm hoping that you can maybe kick us off telling us just a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about your background and what it was like to find yourself with a life sentence at 16 years old, what that experience was like for you. Okay, and I'll try it not spend the entire 30 minutes answering that question Elise. um so hi everybody i'm jessica hicklin and like Elise said i'm cto and co-founder of a tech nonprofit that does prison education but um that's not where i started life i uh i did in fact go to prison at 16 on a life without parole sentence and i served 26 years on that sentence and came home this past january um life has definitely been interesting since then we could dig into it as relevant but um 
it's uh, it's really hard to explain what it's like to be a 16 year old kid and be told that you're gonna spend the rest of your life in prison i mean most kids don't understand rest of your life as a sentence you know it's we, we think we do as teenagers that we understand everything about life but the fact is we don't and so there there i was sitting there before a jury as they were giving me that sentence trying to understand what it meant and trying to turn around and tell and explain to my family that, that it didn't mean my life was over um, it actually took me about five years to fully, fully grasp what life without parole meant. And so <clears throat> at that time I was in, in the Potosi Correctional Center, you know, I was 20, 21 as I began to look around and trying to decide, well, now what? So, and obviously we can touch on some of the now what as we, we go further, but that's, that's the short version. That's amazing. So you are 16 years old. You found yourself in Potosi Correctional Center. And I will full disclosure here, uh, my day job is I work at Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. So I'm highly aware uh, that Potosi Correctional Center is where our death row is housed in Missouri. It's very high level, maximum facility. Um, and can you tell me just a little bit about, you know, particularly what that was like at 16, being amongst folks that were um, sentenced to life and folks um, that were also sentenced to death? Hmm. Sure, and just again for transparency. Uh, normally a criminal process takes a year and a half to two years. So that by the time I stepped into the Potosi Correctional Center, I was 18, but um, I was placed in an adult county jail at 16. So, um, but yeah, that's back 26 years ago or 24 years ago, whatever it was, Potosi was a very different place than it is now. There was, you know, there was no security surveillance cameras and you, everybody at the time, I think the number was 98% of people that were in Potosi were never going home, which means they either had a death sentence, life without parole, or so much time that they would never see the outside world. And so as an 18-year-old kid, it was it was terrifying. And honestly, yeah, I was sexually assaulted several times in my first couple of years there. So yeah, Potosi was a very violent place in the, uh, the late 90s. Wow. Yeah, I, I imagine that, you know, five years, you said, to fully kind of understand your place and, and what you had ahead of you. Um, so mm -hmm. tell me about, like, how things started to change. I know that we have these evolving standards of decency um, regarding mm -hmm. the use of the death penalty and regarding, um, you know, what's considered cruel and unusual for juveniles. So you're in there for 26 years. Tell me when you felt like you might be able to get out or what happened with the law um, that, you know, made you have some hope to start fighting um, for getting outside. Sure. Um, so without putting on my lolly really hat, I'll try to explain this as simply as I can. There was um, <clears throat> there's a series of cases that made this change. So it wasn't all like one fell swoop that, you know, somebody woke up one day and said, what are we doing to our kids? Um, and the first of those cases was the case of Christopher Simmons, who was a juvenile scheduled to be executed here in the state of Missouri in sort of a strange world. Um, I was Chris Simmons' Sully at the time, uh, Sully, me, uh, prison slang for a uh, roommate. And, you know, we were, we had been up all night advocating for, for his life on it actually. And, you know, then we woke up one morning and they pulled him out in front of the cell and, uh, uh read him his death warrant and drug him off for his execution. But two weeks later, Missouri Supreme Court came down with Roper versus Simmons, which was when uh, the state family said, you know, we can't we can't be executing kids. And that that precedent went up to the U.S. Supreme Court shortly thereafter. And uh, that started a trend that that took. So from 2005 to 2016, <clears throat> there was a series of cases that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, 
slowly progressing to where we are today. So um, the next one was Graham versus Florida, where they decided that juveniles should be sentenced to life without parole if they didn't commit a homicide. Following after that was um, Miller versus Alabama, where they where the U.S. Supreme Court said you you, you can't sentence juveniles to life without parole in a mandatory sense, um, which for clarity doesn't mean that the United States Supreme Court won't do it anymore. But our argument that states can't do it anymore, but they can't do it as a mandatory version. They have to they have to have an option for a juror to select something else. And it took another four years for the U.S. Supreme Court to clarify that that applied retroactively. So in 2016, when um, Montgomery versus Louisiana came out, that's when I officially had that that legal precedence that said I would have a chance to convince somebody, and it wasn't clarified at the time, that maybe another option should have been considered. And for me, that that involved a couple more years of litigating and... Honestly, the judge that sentenced me to prison came forward and wrote a very, very supportive amicus. And um, and then obviously MacArthur Justice Center did great work with uh, um, a plaintiff here in the state. And the Missouri Board of Probation and Parole finally decided that after juveniles serve 25 years on life without parole sentences, they can try and convince the board they have an opportunity to come home. And for me, that was last year that I got that opportunity. That's amazing. So um, from the time you went up before the parole board to the time that you got an outdate, what was um, the time between that? Uh, just six months, okay. which was amazing. That is pretty much the shortest that that happens. Yeah, that is amazing. And do you know about how many um, juveniles were are incarcerated in Missouri without parole? Do you have um, Prior to the ruling, there was just over 100. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry, prior to the the last ruling, there was 100 that were already in the prisons. Wow. Wow. I'm, that's amazing. And I know you. I know a few other juvenile lifers who have gotten out and just are contributing back to society a hundredfold. And I'm just so grateful to MacArthur Justice and Christopher Simmons and all of the people that set those precedents for um, folks to get out. So that's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned Christopher Simmons, who I think he should be getting out soon. But Christopher Simmons was 18 and not permitted to be executed. Um, tell me a little bit more, if you will. Um, one time you told me that you were inside with over 80 people that have been executed by Missouri. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me like a little bit about what you think folks out here need to know about people that are sentenced to death in Missouri? And then I want to particularly talk about Amber McLaughlin, who has an execution date. Sure. Um, <clears throat> the very, very short version is, you know, I mentioned that Potosi was a very violent place in 97. I was an 18-year-old kid. And um, for the, the listeners who don't know, I'm also a trans woman. And so I transitioned on the inside. <clears throat> I came out as Jessica. And after a couple of years of litigation uh, with the state, I eventually reached a point where I began living as a woman inside of the of the death row camp here in Missouri. So there's context there of, of understanding that I was probably the one of the most vulnerable people that can be in that environment, um, surrounded by all the people on death row. And here in Missouri, um, death row inmates are not segregated from general population. So I was around, worked with, recreated with and lived with several people that were on death row. And the first thing I like people to know is I've never in my entire time in prison was ever harmed by any of those folks. Um, in fact, my experience is that generally the people on death row were the ones I was most comfortable with because 
Yeah, most of them, it's 20 years after the horrible mistake that they have made. And a lot of them feel very accountable for the things that they've done and make that change. And so I considered many people that were on death row my friends because they treated me with respect and they, and I was safe around them. And so that's the first thing to understand is that there's this idea that people on death row are monsters and we just have to put them to death because we have to protect the world from them. And it's just simply not true. Um, and then I would follow up with a, a more obvious fact that sometimes gets overlooked that they're still human beings. You know, the, everybody I met on, on death row are people that, you know, they're, they have compassion and, 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 caring and they have families that love them and they have just the same thing that every other human in this world has you know they they have a heart and a hope for the future and and really truly do not deserve to be put to death you know nobody does and i guess that's another context i need to add to this conversation you know i, I speak about these things and i have to acknowledge that i myself made that mistake i mean i got life without parole because i took somebody's life and so, one, I don't ever mean to take away from the harm I caused in the world. I don't mean to say, when I talk about these things, I don't, I don't, I need to acknowledge that I'm accountable for the, the harm that I caused. But it also gives me a perspective to say, like, look, I can tell people that when you take somebody out of the world um, in, a, in, in, in anything other than a natural fashion, when then, you know, natural causes, it leaves a wave of suffering in the people's lives that love that person and so that applies to everybody i've been on death row yeah thank you for that i think we often don't don't think about the co-victims of the death penalty and when we execute someone that we are creating murder family victims leaving them in the wake and at some point someone has to be the bigger person and and put an end to the cycle of violence so i think that's a, a great perspective um so I will say I, I've seen Jessica on social media and kind of knew about your story, but how I ended up connecting and reaching out is because Amber McLaughlin is um, who's sentenced uh, to death and scheduled for execution on January 3rd is also a trans woman and a dear friend of mine and important to me in our work that we're doing. She asked me one day to call Washington University. No, she asked me for the phone number of Washington University so she could call them and try to find Jessica Hicklin. And I was said, Amber, I can find her on Twitter. That'll be so much easier. And so <laughs> I reached out to Jessica who immediately said yes I please send her my phone number um, and explain to me you know that they also had a special relationship inside um, I want to now, now turn to talk a little bit about Amber um, Amber as I mentioned I think I mentioned is also a trans woman living in Potosi um, do you know can you tell me just a little bit like generally about Amber's case and then um, we can talk more personally about Amber um, I can briefly but i'll be perfectly honest um it was always a habit of mine not to dig into people's the details of people's case because it's you know that's often how we want to define people by a simple mistake they made and you know i don't i never wanted to know people that way not because you know i wanted to be blind to who a person was but who a person is is who they are when they're in front of me at that moment not defined by a single action i mean if you extrapolate that to our lives, what if you looked at the worst thing anybody 
you know, who's committed a crime or not, looks at the worst thing you've ever done in your life and said that that is the thing that will define me for the rest of my life. It's 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 a horrible thought for anybody. So, yeah. honestly, I, I, I have I've read the details of Amber's case once, I think, and said, you know, the Amber I know is not the Amber who made this mistake. So given that, I don't have a lot of details for you on it other than to say, you know, I um in talking with Amber. I look at the things that I, I read about her case and then I look at the woman that was in front of me and, you know, I truly believe that it was simply a moment in her life where she made a horrible mistake. And because, you know, she was struggling with issues of, of, you know, undiagnosed, untreated mental health conditions and, and in an environment that was not supportive of her. So yeah. sorry to give you that, that answer, but that's no, the truth. I think I don't that like... is a very fair a very fair answer. Um, I will just add, you know, because I think with Amber's case, and I'm not talking about like I want to take a look into the crime or what happened at the trial, but I do want to note too, I think it's important about Amber's case is that Amber was never sentenced by a jury of her peers. She was sentenced yes. by one singular judge who heard that mitigating evidence you you mentioned about her traumatic and abusive childhood and could not unanimously decide that she deserved the ultimate punishment. And Amber's situation is unique in that sense, but it's the same as all of these cases as there are constitutional violations. Amber's sentence was vacated from 2016 to 2021 based on the fact that the jury deadlocked. So now to have a date so quickly after that, after she was clear of the death sentence for a while, it's it's really um, shocking. And and I know it's additional trauma to Amber. So I appreciate that. And I I, I love that you know Amber as a, a person and not based on her history because you're exa- you're absolutely right. I would never want to be defined by my worst day <laughs> as as I'm sure Amber wouldn't either. So thank you for for saying that. Um, tell me a little bit though about you know your time inside with Amber and what you think our listeners would want to know about her as a person. Sure. Well, and so you know, you mentioned that Amber is a trans woman and and so I knew Amber before that process. And it's interesting because, you know, I look back and I, I spent more than a decade around Amber, you know, prior to her transition. And, you know, we we were cordial, but we never we were never really friends just because, you know, Amber was really reserved and, you know, we would pass each other and hi, how are you? And then move on. But there was no you know, Amber was very introverted at the time, which is, if you know her now, is kind of a funny thing to say, but um, it's true. And then one day, um, so as a result of the litigation I brought, um, I kind of found myself in a position of, of being what a lot of the trans women referred to as mom. I was I would help people understand what it is to go through that transitional process and, and how to navigate courts on name changes and things like that. And so one of my daughters uh, showed up one day to uh, our normal weekly meeting and, and she had Amber with her. And she says, hey, I want you to meet um, this girl who needs help. <laughs> and I remember looking at Amber and going, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, I, I gave Amber a hug and, and uh, asked her, you know, how does she prefer to be referred? And then when they referred to her as Amber and told her I would help, she gave me the biggest smile. And uh, that's when I really first began to to know Amber is the person she is, uh, which is a, well, honestly, we had about a good year of Amber smiling and telling the silliest of jokes and always just being, you know, 
Amber is a simple person, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. It's just it doesn't take much to make her smile, and it doesn't. She doesn't expect a lot from the people around her. You know, she just wants to make somebody laugh and, and tries in the, the, the with the horriblest jokes you could ever hear. Um, <laughs> dad jokes is what I call them. Yes. Um, but that's her. And and we spent you know a year having what we refer to as girl talk. You know, and just having hope for the future of, of living life in, it, in, in, in our truths. And, but after that year, you know, the reality of this situation of, of her current situation began to set in. And, you know, the, the beautiful woman that I met on that first day and who would make me laugh on a regular basis um, began to fade again. And, and, you know, the reality of the fact that she was going to be put to death slowly destroyed the joy that I saw in her. Mm. Um, but yeah, Amber is just, she's that silly best friend that uh, everybody has that tells really stupid jokes and uh, just wants to do anything to make you smile. Yes. That's the Amber I know. That is the Amber, yes, that is. And, and her laugh as well. Her laugh is uh, yeah. very joyful and a little bit obnoxious. And I, I love hearing Amber's <laughs> laugh. She's, yes, uh, thank you for sharing that. And um, I, hundred percent agree that you know amber is a beautiful person and i think you know from the time i met her about five years ago to today giving her dignity in in these last months as we continue to fight for her life as hard as we can is what's really been important to our work at madp um, and so i just so appreciate you and promo and mtug and all the organizations that have come around to support her and to affirm her and to just uphold her and uplift her humanity um, as the state is pretty um, anxious and bloodthirsty as we move into 2023. So that really means mm -hmm. a lot. And as I and as I speak with you, I'm so grateful for second chances. I believe Amber deserves a second chance as you do, as does everybody who's living in the carceral system. And we mm -hmm. only have just about three minutes left, but I, I wanna turn just to quickly, if you could tell listeners, what are you doing now? Like, how are you using your second chance? And where could <laughs> folks find you if they wanna learn more? Sure, um, before I do that, I just wanna add a detail I think is important okay. for people to know. that we're, you know, when we ask for clemency for Amber, we're not asking that somebody just lets her go home and free in society because people worry about what does that mean? Um, we're just asking, you know, she'll still spend the rest of her life in prison if we don't put her to death. So, you know, it's 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 something that people need to know. Like we don't have to kill them, kill people and still have that sense of whether we need it or not safety. So thank um, you. I think it's important to distinguish that. I think um, yes, since I've been, uh, and so since I come home, I uh, I've been involved in work where we're trying to increase access to education in prisons. So it's funny, Amber asked for the number to watch you. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so I'm a programmer, programmer analyst for Washington University, where I help work out a technology solution so that they can offer college degrees inside of the prisons. But I'm also the CTO and of a tech nonprofit whose our mission is to build a better justice system from the inside out. And what that means is that we in partnership with launch code we teach people how to code in the prisons and then we we've begun taking people who come out of that coding program and help them use those skills to solve the problems that they've lived every day which means things like the lack of access to education in prisons and we just recently got involved in helping uh those justice involved individuals helping fix the 
the horrible court systems through uh, legal document auto- automation. So, cool. yeah, we we train people with we train people with skills so that they can have jobs and they come home and contribute to society. And then we uh, we try and employ them fixing the problems that we all see every day. You know, in the United States, there's two million people incarcerated. And the, the the horrible fact of the matter is we're failing at an astronomical rate for bringing these people home. You know, the failure rate's 83%. Wow. And so if you let all 2 million people out, like 1.6 million, 1.8 million, I'd have to do the math, um, we'll go back within 10 years. And it makes no sense because we're, we all, there's plenty of data that shows if you just educate people, uh, that rate goes down to almost zero by the time somebody gets a master's degree. And... So we're trying to solve that problem as yeah. best as we can. You know, I, I made a promise to, and this is probably not something that's come out before. Um, I used to know Maida Weber, who was the director of Parents Who Murdered Children for Illinois and Missouri. And I made a promise to that woman before I came home and before she passed that I would spend the rest of my life trying to make sure I can solve the problem so that no more people, you know, we talk about people going back, but in order for somebody to go back, usually somebody else has to be victimized. Yeah. And so, you know what? we just provide people the tools guess what they uh they tend to they they tend to not do that so that's what i'm working on that's amazing and that's a wonderful perspective and i think if we listen to folks that are impacted and let them lead the way then i think we're going to have a better future for people coming out of the carceral system i would love to have you back to do a show on that topic um, because it's that's great and important work and unfortunately though we are out of time today on jaws of justice so we're gonna take a break and go to the calendar now thank you so much for being with us jessica Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. We've entered our annual year-end fund drive here at KKFI, and we're looking for support from listeners like you. In case you didn't know, we are a listener-supported, non-commercial community radio station that is committed to reflecting the diversity of the local and world community. We seek to amplify voices and music that have been underrepresented by other media, and we can't do it without you. Please take a moment to support your community radio station by donating online at www.kkfi.org. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to Kansas City Community Radio. Now the calendar for the week of December 19th. The Kansas City Chapter of Missouri Citizens United for the Rehabilitation of Errants has a monthly virtual meeting. Missouri Cure advocates for the human rights of prisoners in Missouri prisons and jails, as well as for those who have returned to society. For information, call Keith Braniel at 816-377-2873. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. 
Tuesday, December 20th, 6 to 8 p.m., the State Office Open House for Clemency for Amber is at the Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, 3151 Olive Street, Kansas City, Missouri, RSVP at 816-931-4177. Tuesday, December 20th, 5 to 7 p.m., Survivors Will Heal. Support Group for Shooting Survivors will meet at the Robert J. Mohart Multipurpose Center, 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. To RSVP, contact Latrice.Murray at kcmothersincharge.org or phone 816-912-2601. Friday, December 23rd, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. is the third annual Christmas celebration at Truman Event Center. Christmas at the Crossroads is Shelter Casey's annual celebration of Christmas serving adults experiencing homelessness. The holiday event offers food, fun, and fellowship with booths, a traditional holiday meal, care package giveaways, and more. 601 East Truman Road, Kansas City, Missouri. Volunteers are needed. Please contact Shelter Casey Administrative Office at 816-421-7643. A list of services, mails, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That's updated daily. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy Kwanzaa. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We'll now return to our program. This is Terry Wilkie. Both of the guests are muted. Craig, are you there? Rosalind, are you there? Great. Let's go. Okay, my name is Rosalind Temple. I'm the founder and the program director of KC Mothers in Charge. Well, gun violence is a problem here in Kansas City, Missouri. We have a, a very bad gun violence problem. My son was a part of being a gun violence problem 2011, November 23rd, when he was murdered in his own apartment at the age of 26. So that's when my, my, uh, my purpose started. I had to do some in my community. Okay. Um... Rosalind, can you tell us a little bit about, before we get a lot into the gun violence issue, if you'll spend about three or four minutes just telling us what KC Mothers in Charge is and what it does. KC Mothers in Charge is mothers, uh, grandmothers, fathers, family members that's in, in the Kansas City community area. It is also a national organization. It's based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, started by Dr. Dorothy Johnson Spike in 2003. But I started a chapter here in Kansas City in 2013. But mothers, we pre- we're a prevention. We want to save, if we can just save one life, that means a lot. So we are, we're, I'm calling out to homicide scenes in our Kansas City community when a homicide occurred. I'm first responded with the Kansas City Police Department. I'm called by the Sergeant of Murder Squad. I support families, community, and police department to bridge a gap. Because we have a problem in our community that you see that where we at today at 167 homicides in the inner city. It's not our surrounding counties, it's Kansas City, Missouri, inner city. Okay. <laughs> so what I want to do is talk some about how we got to this point, um, why we have so much gun violence and all, and what your ideas are on what we can do to um, maybe resolve that some. One of the things that 
so one of the things that I want to do is read a little piece, a paragraph from a newsletter that Michael Morrison's out on a regular basis. And so I want to read a little piece of what he says. It starts out after each mass shooting, after each school and church and shopping mall slaughter, a choir of voices screams out. Why have we not done something to end gun violence in this country? We ask this question as if we don't know the answer, when in fact, deep down, we know exactly what we need to do. We just don't want to say it out loud. We don't want to be attacked. We are afraid of the anger of the gun owners. Um, then he suggests four things that need to be done. One is to admit who we really are. Um, we have, in this country alone, we have more guns than we have people. And just 22% of the Americans have guns. 78% do not have guns. 3% of the Americans own 175 million, which is nearly a third of all the guns in the country. Um, and you suggest that we ban guns whose sole purpose is to kill other human beings. So, you know, rif hunting rifles, et cetera, would not be banned, but those would be. Um, let me have you comment on those first two parts of it, and then we'll talk about his other two parts. Yeah, well, well definitely, I think that is a problem. But I, I start, what I see, what I have seen, when we see a homicide, a person being killed in our community, and we don't do anything, we don't say nothing, we don't protest, it is okay, it's not your business, well, it is. Just a matter of time, it's going to go to the schools, the malls, at the big areas, places where the mass shootings are happening. We have to start in our communities. And one thing with guns, I think people have to vote. If we don't vote, this problem would never change. We got to stand for something. And that's what I always say, you know, because people being killed by people, there's a lot of mental health issues, a lot of trauma going on in the homes, stuff that has not been um, addressed. Um, but we have to start in our communities, in our homes to address the guns. Yes, Missouri has one of the worst gun laws that I have ever seen. Yeah, and the country does too. But I don't think every, I personally, as a mother that lost a son to homicide, I don't think everybody has a gun is a bad person that plan on killing someone. But we open up a big, that we allow an open space to be open where anyone can go get guns. So when the when the good people have guns or out there doing something, so the bad people think they have it's only right for them to have a gun. Well, we have to address some issues, the ages, we have to address the criteria of who is getting these guns. We got we got to do some background checks. Um, this country is out of control with guns, yes. But how do we fix that? We have to start in our communities. That's why I see in our in our communities because we have homicide homicides every day and no one seems to think it's a problem. Let me ask you this, in terms of statistics, in the Kansas City area, 
what percentage of the homicides are by gun violence? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm gonna give you some statistics of all the victims that have been killed from the race first, races first. 97 black males been killed in Kansas City this year, 20 black females, 27 white males, 10 white females, 12 Hispanic males. So that right there tells you a lot. Um, and so the problem in Kansas City is a black on black problem. Yes, it is. So I'm a black mother. My son was a black young man and I would speak at that and I can speak at that. Homicides I go out to in the Kansas City community and in inner city homicides I'm called out by the Kansas City Police Department. It's a lot of family issues. There's a lot of violence that people know everybody. Everybody know everybody based in Kansas City. And so what we said, we have 100 fire hand, handguns that have been used this year. And we see 45 unknown, unknown weapons. I tell you a lot, they don't know what kind of weapon, but it was a gun, but it was unknown. 97 rifles, I mean, nine rifles, nine rifles. So we have a problem. Assault uh, weapons are in our community like we're drinking water. They walk around in our stores. A lot of our um, businesses allow guns. That's what they, they need to stop that. I don't think a business should allow a gun in their establishment. No business. I have been in places where guns, people walking with guns, and I leave out because, see, that's what I mean. you just never know what happened to mental health. Somebody bump into someone, somebody step on your shoe. We don't know how to deal with conflict. Did that help you out some? Yes. Um, so now you said assault rifles are like water. Yes. Would you ban assault rifles if you could? And yes, I would. Speaking, okay. And then speaking of that, you said part of what we need to do is vote. And so I assume that... Go Going along with that is that we need to make gun violence a political issue in every campaign. Is that fair? I, I believe it's already political. <laughs> I believe no. it's already political. Um, I, I, I think we just need to make a, a lot of voices. What people go out and vote in our communities on when it's a presidential vote. Yes, you do that too. You definitely vote when a presidential vote come up. But I'll... I, all, I, all the time voting that comes up, that's what people in our community don't go out and vote. Every issue is our issues. And we have to fight on every issue that comes up. Every time there's an election going on in our community, we need to be at the polls and voting and understanding. I think a little more of, uh, educational. I think a lot of people in our community don't understand what they're voting for. Because I've, I've been in that place, so, the, so now today I know to do my homework before I go out and vote. But I remember I didn't understand. So when you don't understand, you don't go to vote. I think we need to get more educational to educate our community of what, who is up running, what's going on, who they are, and talk about it. Not talk around it, but talk about the issue. Stop turning our heads when it comes to people that we know and that we can even love. If they have, if, if it's an issue with them, let's address it. Don't put them in, in, in position where they keep allowing these same problems in our community. Because see, we're gonna keep on burying people, we're gonna keep on having mass shootings, and they're getting bad. But every time it's a homicide in our community, we need to come out and protest every homicide in Kansas City. 
Okay. Um, so Michael Moore also suggests that part of preventing the violence is eliminating its roots causes and creating a new peace and public safety center in our neighborhoods. So that sounds a lot of what you're saying in terms of taking it to the community. Um, what, what do you see as some of the root causes? Conflict, don't deal with conflict, don't to agree, to disagree and walk away and be okay because someone didn't agree with you. We have a lot of mental health issues that has went unaddressed for many years. Uh, no one wants to talk about it, no one wants to get the help um, and trauma. This whole community, Kansas City community, all the communities that surround it has been traumatized. You should have been traumatized by these 100, 167 homicides. See, because no one is exempt from being losing someone to violence by a gun. So the trauma is so heavy. The conflict on our deal with conflict and the mental health issue. If we don't address these problems, we'll keep on having these problems. Okay. Uh, one of the things Michael Moore suggested in line with what you're talking about with mental illness is he's saying that it's a psychosis and we should treat it like that we treated the pandemic. Now, the only thing is with that, though, with the pandemic, with the physical illness, you can develop the vaccine. But there are no vaccines for mental illness. So what do you see as aiding in that? Um, I, I know a lot of times when people in the criminal justice system, they're ordered to go to anger control classes and anger management. Is that something maybe we ought to have in every school as kids are growing up? You know, I know like in the prisons they did several years ago back, they had started uh, drug, and, drug and alcohol treatment inside the prisons. I think they need to start the mental health issue uh, facilities in the prison, getting help, teaching them or guiding them how to learn with their, what's their deal, deep root cause issue inside them. So I think that's one of the things to happen in the prison system, to send them off to um, these, these really bad mental, because a lot of people just, has some, some, some issues that they can be addressed, but they need people to help them. You have to put the right people in a place to help them. So we have to find people, even in our homes, our community, that's going to speak the truth. No matter who you are. See, because I've been seeing families where this is their family, they won't talk about it. They're going to be okay. No, they're not going to be okay. When you see issues in your home, in your community, people around your neighborhood walking around have some issues, you got to try to help them address that. Talk about because when you turn your head, it's a matter of time, you put some street drugs on top of that, and then they alter the races, and then they get a gun in their hand, and they kill someone and themselves. And so those who just joined us recently, we are talking to Rosalind Temple, who is the founder and executive director of Kansas City uh, Mothers in Charge chapter, and um, we are talking about gun violence. Um, so let's go to what makes us different from other countries? Because um, Michael Moore says there's over 200 other countries with the vast majority of them very similar to the United States 
in many other aspects, but when it comes to gun violence, we are by far the worst. In some, it, in some of those countries, it, it really doesn't even exist at all. Well, that's what I hear. You know, a lot of the countries don't allow guns in their country. People just have, it's, it's just not an open carry. You don't, they don't have them. We got to, that's what the United States got to, we have to say, okay, yeah, we understand people like guns. We think some people that have hobbies with guns, I get that. But somewhere we open up to where everyone can have guns. We got to go back to some of the other countries like they're doing, they're not having the highest gun violence problem that we're having in the United States. So the United States is to look at that and do something about that. You know, I know that uh, it's so down other countries, it just makes me, it breaks my heart that, you know, that we're so bad. So we got to address that. United States, that's where voting gonna come in at. We're going to vote. Okay. Let me ask you this, though, with the voting issue. The people, I think, and I could be wrong about this, but my gut instinct is that the people who would vote out the ones who don't want to do anything about gun violence and just leave the status quo, that those are the people who or voting and the people who want to do something about it, their votes are being, they're the people who are from the groups that are being suppressed from voter suppression everywhere. Yeah, well, you know, like I say, the thing, it's a lot of good people. It's, it's, it's way more good people than bad people. So I think we're going to have to, we're going to, have to, we're going to dig deeper, hard and, and speak out in our communities to get the good people to come and vote. And over count over count them people that that, that say they, they really don't see the issue. Well, we see the issues. We're addressing 160 lives and taking so 167 lives been taken so far this year. And is that just Kansas City, Missouri or the whole metro area? That's just Kansas City, Missouri, inner city. You by any chance know how many in Kansas City, Kansas? No, I, I, I do not. No, I do not. But it's not to 100. I, I guarantee you that. Uh, okay. Um, if we can't get any meaningful gun control, through Congress, other than mental health issues, do you see anything else that would help, um, including maybe teaching some kind of classes when children are born that every parent would have to go to to be a better parent, and maybe that would help? We definitely need some parenting skills. Yes, we do. Um, I think it's a lot of people that, a lot of this new generation, people don't understand the parenting skills. I think we can go back to um, what used to happen. We used to have a, 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 a um, I know, you know, I'm not a religious organization, but prayer. 
Um, we need to we need to bring back some prayer in our schools. Um, we got to um, we got to help this new generation because they don't understand about parenting. I remember having my children; I didn't understand neither. But when when God renewed my mind, and then I became the mother that I should be able to become, and the sister, grandmother, and on 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 ongoing. Um, but I think that yeah, we definitely need some parenting still issues in our community. We need the uh, support of our community to step up and do what's right. Yeah. Um, so let, let me ask you this. We're down to just a couple minutes. Do you have some closing thoughts about this issue that we haven't touched on yet? I just know um, that we're just in a bad place. If the, if the community does not step up and say they have really had enough, nothing's going to change. We got to come together and to be able to really and protest. I'm saying protest. Like we did protest on the plaza years ago. We protest every homicide and get these people out of the community or get them some help. Um, things will change. Okay, so you know, we're about out of time. This is Craig Lubo. I've been talking to Rosalind Temple. Rosalind is the founder and um, director of KC Mothers in Charge chapter. And we've been talking about gun violence. And um, so thank you to you, Rosalind. Thank you to our engineer today, Terry, and who is also our associate producer. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Today, we're with the district attorney of Harris County, Houston, nation's fourth largest city. Some say it's uh, maybe the third now. Chicago's losing ground to us. But we're with district attorney Kim Ogg. Thank you for being with us. It's great to see you again. Normally, Criminal background is important when it comes to violence and being a predictor of future violence. But when it comes to possessing drugs, regardless of your background, when it's weed, legal in many states, medically legal in a majority of states, it had to be equally applied, this offer of non-arrest. All people have to do is take a class. So it's a, it's a good program. I can't legalize marijuana. I can't even decriminalize it. But by working with the cops, we came to an agreement. We have more important things to do. We have to stop violent crime. And look at what fentanyl has done. And what I do want to mention is that we do see an increased connection between the manufacture and, uh, and transportation and, and sale of fentanyl along with human trafficking. So you're seeing people and that deadly drug transported by the same cartels and same organized crime groups. And Houston's a major stopping point, uh, distribution center, air traffic control for sending it out to the rest of the country. We've got to get on top of that. Fentanyl's killing the hell out of Houstonians, out of Texans, and out of Americans. We really believe in treatment for drug addiction. I think it was best handled by the healthcare system, not by the criminal justice system. I'm working right now with the director of probation and with some other groups to talk about directing all of our drug cases, which need to be reduced in this county so we can work on violent crime, but handling all of them through a treatment plan and as little court supervision as 
necessary, once again, to direct more of our court's resources to violent criminals. That's what people care about, Dean. They want to be safe in their grocery store and in their house, not whether you're smoking a joint or whether somebody's got um, LSD in their pocket. I, I'm not for LSD or hard drugs, and I think the legalization would have to include a ton of regulation. Education. You know, drug dealing, like all entrepreneurship, is just uh, the black market instead of uh, our world market, and the imagination is limitless. So, of course, they're in the <laughs> suburbs. Of course, they're in our urban areas. Of course, they're in our rural areas. People uh, will find a way to make this happen for profit. It's part of why your work, I think, is important. Regulation is, uh, I think, an answer. And I really hope legislators consider that angle as they go to work on our drug laws in the future. You know, I've supported this at the legislature, mm -hmm. and I think it's important that leadership take a stand. So I encourage other elected officials to talk to you and with you, Dean. It's always good to talk to your audience. Let them know in Houston we have a very reasonable approach to marijuana. It applies to anybody, regardless of their position in life or even with criminal justice history, because uh, we don't want disparate treatment of one race over another. And uh, we've seen a lot of that in drug enforcement. I'm out to end it. We want to stop the deadly flow of drugs, and we definitely want to stop the trafficking of human beings. And so I'm against organized crime. That's why I was the city's first anti-gang director. Still against it. I think uh, there's better ways of handling this area of criminal justice. Leave us to rape, murder, and robbery, the things we all agree are wrong. Yeah. Dean, I want you to know we're doing our best to keep everybody safe. I don't think the focus is on the individual user here in Houston. That's the impression I get from other leaders about drug enforcement. That's good news. That's a good common sense approach to dealing with what the rest of the taxpayers want us to do, violent crime. You tickled me, Dean, because <laughs> you're a committed, purposeful journalist and activist, and our democracy needs it. I, I like you, and I like your work, and I always appreciate being on your show. Well, Kim Ogg, thank you so much. Dean, always my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this great discussion with the District Attorney of Houston, Harris County, Kim Ogg. I am Dean Becker, the Reverend Most High, saying, because of prohibition, you do not know what's in that bag. Please be careful. you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. 
You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 